Hello, welcome back. Happy summer for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere. Ah, summer. Summer means relaxation, vacation, and a no worries, hakuna matata kind of vibe, right? Well, hopefully that's true for some of you. Although, if you live in the U.S. and you work outside of education, summer probably still means work. And I don't know about you, but it feels shorter and shorter every year. But even the possibility of some stress relief is really uplifting right now. And I've heard that from so many other people. I don't think that longing for a break is just a normal summer feeling like any other year, though. This is a post-2020, post-quarantine, hybrid, flexible, back-to-office, faux, post-pandemic kind of summer. As the kids say these days, it hits different. We are living through a time of massive disruption, and one of the symptoms is what many are calling an epidemic of burnout. The term burnout has been used increasingly over the last few years, and along with other concerns around mental health and well-being, it's become a focus for many companies around the world, with four in five organizations reporting that it's a top priority. There are lots of explanations and theories as to why it's become such a ubiquitous problem, but so far, effective solutions seem out of reach. According to the World Health Organization, burnout is an occupational phenomenon. It is driven by a chronic imbalance between job demands, for example, workload pressure and poor working environment, and job resources, for example, job autonomy and supportive working relationships. It is characterized by extreme tiredness, reduced ability to regulate cognitive and emotional processes, and mental distancing. Burnout has been demonstrated to be correlated with anxiety and depression, a potential predictor of broader mental health challenges, end quote. Said more plainly, if you're feeling burned out, it's probably extremely difficult to be effective at your job. Another word that's been tossed around a lot is overwhelm. My favorite commentary I've heard about overwhelm lately was on Brene Brown's podcast, and she distinguishes between an experience of stress versus one of overwhelm and says it's important to know the difference. She says, Overwhelm means an extreme level of stress and emotional or and or cognitive intensity to the point of feeling unable to function. I think the big difference is we can function in stress. We really can't function in overwhelm, end quote. I've also heard her say that a good test is if you're stressed, you can still delegate or tell people what you need. But if you're overwhelmed, you can't even see the path forward. She also talks about how studies are showing that nothingness is really the only cure for overwhelm. Nothingness meaning you don't go do a bunch of chores around the house or run errands or just cut down on your to-do list and your meetings. You do nothing. And she stresses that if you can identify that you're at at a point of overwhelm, then you have to take responsibility for that and really do nothing. McKinsey also just did a global survey this year that showed, on average, one in four employees are reporting experiencing burnout symptoms. If you look at the study, which I'll link in the show notes, there's a graph of rates across 15 countries, which is really interesting because it's fairly consistent across all of them. So it isn't just a U.S. thing. It's a world thing. It's a human thing and a characteristic of this time that we're living in. As an example, though, it shows that in the U.S., 28% report burnout symptoms sometimes, often, or always, and 32% report an experience of moderate distress. One other really interesting piece of the McKinsey survey is that it showed, on average, a 22% gap between how employees and employers perceive mental health and well-being within their organizations. So employers are rating the workplace and their commitment to addressing these issues much more favorably than employees are. It's great that we're all talking about this in a broad way, and hopefully that means we'll make progress on it eventually, although we're coming into yet another phase of disruption. Now that people are transitioning or have transitioned back to a more hybrid work experience and many back to commuting, traveling, being in an office, our routines are being shaken up again. Time and space have become such precious things. We went from having none of it and knowing no different to having way more of it in quarantine and adjusting our rituals, routines, and availability accordingly. And now we're shifting again. Driving time comes from somewhere. Taking the kids to sports and school and summer camp comes from somewhere. Not to mention the 18 weddings that you have to go to this year and the vacation you've pushed back four times since 2020. 
Now, I mentioned the personal things because it isn't just work that's demanding so much of us. We're emerging and shifting socially, too. It's nearly impossible these days to truly separate and draw hard lines between personal and professional time, which came first with quarantine and virtual work, but is being carried forward by flexible work arrangements. There are pros and cons to that. But from my perspective, what it means is that we have to look at our time more holistically. Work and the rest of life come from the same 24 hours a day. Are we being conscious of how we're designing that time? The McKinsey article talks about the role of the organization in these rates of burnout and distress, including toxic workplace behavior, which is something that MIT Sloan also did a study on recently relating to the Great Resignation, which is worth looking into. But the truth is that within the challenge of burnout, stress, anxiety, and overwhelm, there are multiple contributing factors. Yes, systemic and cultural ones, but also personal ones. As a leadership coach, this dichotomy comes up fairly often, and it's true that we're all operating within a system of behavior and mindsets that impact how we show up and how we perform. But focusing only on what we can't control is pretty disempowering, and it can lead to a victim mindset that isn't actually very valuable. Yes, we have cultures and patterns of behavior that we need to shift, of course, and leaders are important players, critical, in making progress possible. However, it starts with the self. What is in my control? What can I do to change my personal experience of my day-to-day work? We are the guardians of our own time, our energy, our presence, and what we choose to contribute. And guess what? If you want to be a leader in shifting a culture of behavior, leading by example rather than displaced blame is much more powerful. If people start seeing you design valuable space and self-care into your work life, they will feel encouraged to do so as well. If you are transparent about your own challenges relating to stress and time management, others will be much more likely to disclose theirs and become part of the problem-solving team rather than a disconnected and disheartened employee at risk of leaving. It starts with you. You have to change your own system of behavior before you change the organizations, because guess what? You're part of the system. Robin shared in a recent podcast a couple, episode, a couple episodes ago that a client once said, well, if we want to grow the company 20%, how is every employee going to grow 20% themselves? That may sound too simple, but maybe it really is that simple. That doesn't mean it's easy, quite the opposite. It's a tough pill for anyone to swallow when you hear the solution to your problem is yourself, but it is the most effective and most valuable place to start. For this episode, I was joined once again by my colleagues Kel Delaney and Katie Mingo, who have both been on the podcast before. Kel, as you'll hear, has become our resident expert in designing for space and productivity, and he's taken on some fairly extreme experiments, which we'll talk about, with his own time to see what works to free up our most engaged, most effective, most collaborative, and creative selves. Katie is a younger professional like myself, and we both have observed and been part of cultures of overwork and constant movement. We also both have an ongoing developmental focus on time management, prioritization, saying no, and maximizing our value, one I'm sure that we'll be working on for a long, long time to come. And through this conversation, we offer what we've learned and noticed about this phenomenon and some practical steps we've seen work to help improve our work and the experience of our working lives, which we hope you'll find helpful as well. Welcome back to another episode of On Connection. Today, I have my favorite co-workers, don't tell anybody else, uh, Kel Delaney and Katie Mingo with me. And we're going to talk about something that feels so relevant, not only, I don't know about you guys, but in my personal life right now, um, but also just we're hearing so much about it in the world from clients, from friends, from other colleagues. Um, And it stems from this challenge people are experiencing around stress, burnout, overwhelm, all of that, um, which seems to be a common experience since the pandemic started, but there's this new phase we're in right now where we're hearing different stories about that experience. And where we would like to take that is we've learned some things about 
creating, designing space in your life and your work life that can not only help you prevent the burnout, breakdowns, overwhelm, et cetera, but also actually makes you smarter, more valuable, more connected. So, um, well, Kel, you really are the one who's inspired a lot of this conversation and you've taken some pretty drastic measures to experiment around what this looks like. So do you want to share anything about that and like what caused you to take such a leap in designing your time the way you have this year? Sure. Um, well, I've been fascinated by this for probably 20 years at this point, which is strange to say. I, I still think of myself as early in my career, but maybe not as much anymore. You're um, an honorary 21-year-old, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> But I've always been fascinated with, you know, this idea of working smart versus hard. What does that look like? What does that mean? We all have those experiences where we have the, a day where you end and you're energized and you feel great. You know, that pleasantly tired feeling that I think most of us had as little kids. You play, play, play hard, and then you just like conk out and you feel great about it. Um, but most of us are having more and more days that are just we're wiped out, we're exhausted, we're dreading things, we're dreading the next day. And we, we have this pervasive sense of I can never catch up. And I think over the years, I, I went the life hacking direction, like, how can I manage my calendar better? How can I say no to things, you know, that type of um, efficiency systems, or uh, that all that type of approach that everyone hears about, you see articles about it all the time. But to me, it's a lot of those are impactful, but it's sort of like when you take, when you're putting books on a bookshelf and you're running out of space and you squeeze that book in, you can, you can fit it, but it takes a lot of energy. And then it's really hard to get any of the books out after that. Those methods have a limited use because they're not actually getting to the root of the problem. And what Emma Rose is referring to that I've done this year with my schedule is I'm taking a week off per month as a weekend through a full week and another week weekend. I had a variety of personal reasons and life reasons why I wanted to, wanted to do that, but a surprising outcome that I didn't fully expect was that space allowed me to decompress enough to then see, I zoomed out and I could see my weeks when I was working so much more clearly. And I was able to see that, oh, you know what? These things that I used to feel urgency around weren't actually as important as I thought. And so I made better choices about where I put my time. I made better choices about what I actually used my, my work time for. And for those who are familiar with the Pareto Principle, you know, 80, often 20% um, of what we do is worth 80% of the outcome and the reverse. There's 80% of what we're doing is, is not actually <laughs> giving us much value. That's what I started to find. All these other things were nice to haves. And I would fill up my time with a sense of, oh, I have to do this and this urgency. But at the end of the day, when I had that space, I, I realized it wasn't the case. There, there was a smaller amount that had the greatest impact that if I used my time for that, I felt great at the end of the day. I did better work. I was proud, more, you know, more proud of it um, and far more effective. And suddenly the exhaustion, the stress was, or, or faded and went away. And I'm not advocating at all that everyone has a week off per month. I mean, I'm sure that would be wonderful. What, I, what I've realized and what I'm actually starting to try to incorporate into every aspect of life and share with Conversant is that principle can be applied in your daily and weekly life even if you're working the normal work schedule. And that's what I've been playing around with for the past few weeks and found like this is incredibly powerful and effective. And it gets to the root of the issue where the life hacking methods are no longer, you know, as necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've loved watching you go through that experiment and watching the company react to it and just sort of the, the shifts and lots of communication that's had to happen in, in creating that opportunity for you. Um, but I mean, we all need somebody to start taking some sort of dramatic <laughs> move to lead us in a more sustainable direction. But 
Katie, what's funny, what's coming up for me right now is that you, when Kel and I were talking about having this conversation on the podcast, Kel thought, oh, Katie might be a good person to have on. So when I reached out to Katie, Katie was like, I don't know. I'm not really good (laughs) at doing that. Like, I don't know if I'm the most reliable person to have a conversation about space and work-life balance and everything. But then that's one of the reasons we thought you would be great because you're normal like the rest of us. Unlike Kel over here, super powered (laughs) man. Um, so Katie, what's up, what's up for you and what made you say yes to being part of this conversation? That is exactly what went through my mind around like, why are you coming to me? I feel like I am terrible (laughs) at setting these boundaries at making space. I just sort of, I have all of these bad habits built up. Um, but I am really realizing more and more. And as I started talking with, with both of you, that this is exactly the time to have this conversation. So right now I'm feeling along with all all of us that sort of peak height of of overwhelm and sort of realizing what how how hot the water has gotten around us you know it, it's that element of you don't realize it when it's in that 1 degree increment and so how can we look at what are the things that are happening now and how can we shift them so i'm definitely coming from this place of my my role is increasing i'm in a lot of different stretch stretch areas and so how do i reset some of these habits now so that the future of work for not only for me, but for people that I lead in the future and people that I work with can feel that effect too and and have that space for themselves. So really creating a different paradigm is what, you know, not too lofty a goal, but it's hopefully where we'll end up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Katie, you and I are in a much more similar position about that. And I mean, I've gotten the feedback, not just in this job, but in previous positions too. One of my developmental areas has always been, you need to say no more. You need to learn how to better prioritize your time part. I mean, I can also look at circumstantially having been in roles where I'm wearing a lot of hats and there's not a lot of structural, clear boundaries around my job description in the first place to kind of lean back on. Um, so there's a lot of negotiation of those boundaries over time. And I was, I've not been great at that. But I think being in this conversation, especially with, you know, Kel over the years at Conversant, there's a, there is room for people to start, you know, setting a new, we talked about setting a new standard for leadership. I think this has to be part of it is how do we create as part of our system of working things that we fall back on that help safeguard our time and our energy in a way that's really helping us be the most valuable people. And I almost said productive, but I'm, I'm almost like fearful of using that word in this context. Cause I think productivity has that like hustle connotation to it. Yeah. There's a false assumption that quantity is better, Yeah, but most of our jobs these days, it's about quality, mm-hmm. higher quality and fewer things goes a lot further than just lots and lots of busyness. You know, I think we've all had that experience. You finish a day, you're exhausted, you did a ton, but you can't really put your finger on what exactly you accomplished. Mm-hmm. That's quantity, yeah. not quality. Quality has a different feeling. You're proud of it. You feel that pleasant tiredness and you end the day with, ah, that was challenging, but I feel good about that day. Right. When we assess ourselves based on like the hours worked sometimes or the tasks completed, not by the weight of each of those hours and tasks, like the emotional weight, the energetic weight, the, you know, there's plenty of things that are much more draining in an hour than something else. And we're not counting that towards our, our, our energy bank or our attention productivity bank, you know? Right. Right. Or even the place we sit in a system, is this something that only you can do to move something else forward um, versus something that a bunch of other people can do too? Right. Yeah. Those evaluation mechanisms. Well, Kel, would, uh, would you share the research thing that you were telling us about when we were prepping for this? Oh. I just feel like it's, <laughs> now it's haunting me. But I can, <laughs> I can roughly, I can roughly share it and I, and we'll have I, to look for it, but it, qualifier yeah. is I'm not like, I might be misremembering some of it, but yeah. the point I think is still valid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when they looked at people and the number of hours they worked, they found that there was one group of people who limited their time. They said no. They kept their time to something that felt reasonable. And they 
did that successfully. They were able to do it, but they were much less likely to be promoted, to get raises, to have the opportunities. They were much less likely to be offered opportunities. Then you had the group of people who legitimately were working 70, 80 hours a week, but their productivity wasn't actually very good because they never had time to recover. And we are not machines. We need time to recover. Um, and then there was another group that they found that said that they worked 60, 70, 80 hours a week, but actually lied about it. And they turned out to be the group that was the most productive and also um, were the happiest, got most, you know, got promoted most often, got a lot of opportunities because they did really great high quality work um, and got raises accordingly. Um, and I think, you know, whether, the, whether I'm remembering the details of this correctly or not, the point I think is valid. You know, I think it was Sweden did a bunch of research too and found that the optimal number of hours worked per week for human beings is 30. That is where we have a nice sweet spot of like really feeling engaged and doing great work and then enough decompression time to connect other aspects of our life and to have that balance that feels good. Now, it's not a precise number. It can vary by industry and job and, and person. I think each of us has our own style that feels good and feels best for us. But once again, the point is what is what matters. It's, we are, uh, one of the things that prompted my schedule this year too was a meditation instructor, something like 20 years ago, who said to me that our culture has become all in-breath and no out-breath. And for me, I was seeking more out-breath. And that's, what, that's why I use this term space, uh, because what it is allowed is this, you know, we are human, we need to breathe. We're not machines that can just go, 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 go forever. Um, and it's through the breathing, through that those rhythms, that we find our sweet spot and and offer what's uniquely human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kel, what strikes me about that that research, even paraphrased, is in our work so much we focus on on accuracy and finding finding the the shared facts that we have that we can agree on. And in, in your story, like there are, what is accuracy in terms of when have we done enough at work? Is it our time? Is it, you know, very few of us have job descriptions where we can bullet point, these are the things I do and no more. Um, and so how do we, how do we get to that point of accuracy or, or just having a, a shared understanding of what we do even? Well, especially in this world of hybrid, virtual, whatever, like, I know I'm thinking of one client that I won't name, um, that the leadership has this perception that a big portion of the company isn't working hard enough, but a lot of employees are reporting that they're overwhelmed, overburdened, stressed, can't possibly keep up with what they're being asked to do. And so there's this mismatch in the perception of reality of people's productivity um, and it's creating more of a divide in terms, you know, between leadership and everybody else. And now people are living in fear of losing their jobs because it feels like they can't prove that they're working really hard because these people in leadership positions that don't actually understand all of the things that go into their day to day, you know, the, the minutia of their role are judging their productivity from afar, because they don't actually see them in an office. They're not seeing what, how many calls they're on a day or, you know, all that. But I would imagine that that's probably a common experience right now at different organizations. Yeah. Emrose, you and I did a podcast back last summer on accountability. Yeah. And I'm just being reminded of that right now, because once again, everything that you're describing is quantitative. It's about right. measurables. It's, a, it's what robots and AI does really well. It's like, can I justify based on number of hours and output? And But that human beings, our greatest contribution is our creative ability, our ability to partner and innovate and collaborate together that those are the things that ai can't actually do very well not the way we do it and the reality is we are going to continue to march into a future where ai takes over more and more of those quantitative roles the mm -hmm. job the, the jobs the work that can be calculated that can just be systematized and what's left is the uniquely human components the creativity the innovation and the collaboration 
And the interesting thing, if you think from a neurobiology perspective, and I, I don't know the names of all the different parts of the brain, but when we are in urgency or stress and overwhelm and everything is, we have no space to breathe. We're just constantly go, go, go. We're in a low level form of fight, flight, freeze, or appease by reaction that we talk about conversing. And as a result, the best that our brain can do is to return us to safety. So it rummages through all our previous experiences, um, everything we've done before, to find the best option that it can execute right now, immediately, as quickly as possible to get us back to safety. So if you think about that from a business perspective, the best we are actually doing is pulling from the past and repeating. Repeating the past. So, okay, so now we're just... (laughs) And then people wonder why do we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again as an organization? Why are we not getting them better or improving? We want to collaborate. We want to be bold. We want to innovate and have creative ideas. But that requires people to have the space. If you can't laugh, if you don't have joy, if you don't have those things, it's a sign that some part of your system, your nervous system is triggered and is in protect mode. And the constant work the constant overwhelm is putting us in a perpetual protect mode. The flip side, though, is if you do create the space and people can laugh and have that that joy, it calms down that part of you. And the parts of the brain that light up are the parts that are creative, are prone to innovate and find new connections, novel connections across ideas, and that collaborate well and empathize and listen. And so if you actually want new, bold, creative ideas, you have to do that. Like businesses have to do that. They are going to be perpetually stuck if they don't create those opportunities for their employees to have that. And once again, I come back to the AI versus human contribution. The AI is going to take away all the work that is in that realm of quantitative, just execute. And the remaining work is the human stuff that requires creativity, innovation, and collaboration. Mm-hmm. but we're going in the opposite direction. Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's, it's like Katie, like you said, there's a paradigm shift that has to happen at some point, which is why this is so hard and intractable. Um, because we have this culture of wanting to, we give ourselves the gold star when we've put in a lot of effort, but like the effort, effort might not be correlated with value is what we're saying. So when, yeah, I, we, Kel, when you and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, it kind of hit me that you can't think strategically when you're stressed. No, you just can't. And so people are being asked to think strategically more and more and more and more and more and more roles. And if you're overwhelmed, that part of your brain actually isn't even available to you. You know, it actually reminds me of a, an early experience I had here, here at Conversant when I first started, one of my, one of my supervisors, I was in awe of how much she got done in a day, how much she was just able to sort of churn out and her, I'll use productivity. And I, and all the ideas that she had were new to me. So it was Kel, just like you were saying about that, like drawing on experience, it seemed new and novel to me from that beginner's mindset. And so I, in a, in an appreciative space said, like, when do you have time to really think about those big pictures and come up with those ideas? And she told me later that that question coming from a new employee kind of haunted her because she realized that she hadn't been, that she had been going off of that, what had worked for her in the past um, and just following that habit. And it, it had her rethink and sort of break out of that space. Um, and so my, my question of like, how do I become more like you had her think like, oh, <laughs> I want to change that a little bit and do something differently too. Mm. Well, I'm curious, you know, we've, the three of us have talked about um, just wrestling with us in our own work and at Converse in our lives. And, but I also have watched both of you learn and grow and adapt. And, you know, I had suggested Katie, cause I've actually, I, you might not be experiencing it that way, but I've seen you make significant changes. I think you've, you've come a long way in your own work. And I, maybe I'm making it up, but I've been watching things that I've, I've mimicked and brought into my work life that I see you do around being very thoughtful, taking the time to think through things, to set expectations. So managing the time and what's needed and what do I need to do to get 
um, to a, a good idea or a decision that I feel good about. Um, but I'm just curious from both your perspectives, your living experience, what, what have you learned? What do you, what do you feel is you've incorporated that's been valuable in your lives? Well, I mean, first, Kel, thank you for saying that. It's, it's nice to just see, you know, we worked together for a long time and it's nice to see our progression in that appreciation. Uh, I definitely view you as a role model. So it's nice that it's reciprocal in this. Um, one thing that's really stuck with me in the last couple of years is uh, a conversation I had with Michelle Hunt, who I think has been on the podcast maybe a couple of times now and who we work with fairly closely. But I I mentioned to her something about like how sometimes setting those boundaries for myself felt selfish. And she stopped, she stopped the conversation right there. Like, I think I was mid-sentence. She's like, hold on wait, if you think that's selfish, what does that say to people who see you viewing, holding your own space as selfish? Like that then tells them that they can't hold space for themselves. And so I think I've, I've tried to take that to heart in a few ways and planning out my day as if I was assigning that work to someone else. And so it gives my people pleaser, you bad habits, a little bit of an outlet to make that more, more valuable and more productive. Like, could I ask this of someone else? Um, and that often breaks a pattern for me. Or try to. Oh, that's so smart. I love that. It's kind of like the whole, you know, if you were giving your friend advice, what would you say? So you're trying to displace so you're not being so hard on yourself. I think that's so smart. That's pretty brilliant. Um, gosh, I think, I mean, ugh. other than getting the license to try boundaries, <laughs> through people like you, Kel, and, you know, seeing other people more senior in the organization, more experienced in their career set those has been where I feel like I've been able to start doing that. But I think the motivation to do it has come from, unfortunately, seeing how much I don't like myself or my work when I am way too overwhelmed. Like when I'm maxed out, not only am I not as as effective in whatever I'm doing. I don't think I'm learning as much from whatever I'm doing because I'm just moving, going through the motions so fast. I also definitely don't collaborate as much. I like collapse in on my own stuff and try to just, you know, put on blinders and get through the to-do list. So I'm not even leveraging the power of our community or other people's talents or inviting people into things to make us smarter together. Um, and I'm a bitch. <laughs> Mostly at home. I don't think I'm a bitch too much at work, but, um, you know, I'm, I just don't think that I'm the best version of myself when I'm like that. And I, I don't think that the cost in the rest of my life is worth whatever I'm gaining at work. Hmm. So that's the motivation at least. And then in terms of like what's worked, um, learning the hard way over the last couple of years that I do need to take time off. It's been hard with the pandemic because, you know, this whole working remotely thing has made me feel like, well, you don't, you can just work at home and take, you know, you can, you can still work and then go run your errands or go have that half day in the afternoon, or you can go visit your friend, but work while you're doing that. And instead of actually creating the space, um, just without an occasion or an obligation or a really good excuse. I was saying to you both before the call, like, I don't, I'm single. I don't have a husband or kids or anything like that to then say, oh, well, I need to go spend time with my family. I really need to prioritize this. I have this, you know, birthday or whatever. I feel like those, we give people a lot of space for, cause then it's not about you. So to your point, Katie, it feels selfish when I'm just saying I'm carving out this time to refresh, reset, relax. Um, but it's so important. So still working on it, work in progress. You're reminding me of this quote I heard recently, which I love. Um, and it's been my experience too. Uh, and it's an Aboriginal quote that says, modern culture 
is three days deep. And if you think about, if you actually took a week off and truly disconnected, it takes at least three days mm -hmm. to fully disconnect and then reconnect to, oh yeah, I can play and I'm on vacation. And like, there is this lag. And I've, I've noticed that in each of my months now that there is, no matter, despite how much I'm building that in, in my daily life, there is uh, the first three, four days I can, I'm off and I'm doing my thing, but then there is a different quality to the second half of the week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a, a good uh, thing to consider as well. When, you know, when you have a week off or you have a few days off and someone goes, well, why can't we just fit in one hour meeting Right. when you're off? Like that is the reason. Yeah. And I, oh yes. And I totally do that. But, well, and, and also, you know, if people have in companies where people still have a restrained time off amount, like days off vacation days that they have in a year, people use those up so quickly on graduations, birthdays, weddings, holidays, all these things where those are great. And, you know, they feed us in different ways, I'm sure but they're not the space away from feeling obligated to something. So there's not the decompression time truly. I mean, how often have you guys gone on a vacation, quote unquote, and then come back more stressed than when you left or there really wasn't the decompression time. It's just that you took off work and because you weren't working for those days, it built up and then you were doing other things like being with family or traveling or what have you. And then you come back to a full inbox and all of these things that you got assigned while you were gone. And that's not, that's not the space that we're talking about. <laughs> right. Well, and you know, this is one of those things where I think every, most people probably will relate to this in theory. They understand intellectually, we all do, that this is valuable or important, or important, but it's really hard to do it pragmatically. And, you know, I was reflecting on what are different ways that you could apply this or try this out. And like I said earlier, it's not about taking huge times off, time off necessarily. It's about creating space everywhere. So in your day, can you create enough space where there's a rhythm through your day that feels good? that you're able to focus where you need to focus, you're able to do things and get them done and not get interrupted 16 times and lose your train of thought and then have to work late into the evening because you could never follow through. And so I was thinking about, you know, how, how, how can you even begin to make decisions about that or reconsider your schedule? And one idea I, I was thinking that I think would be, is really pretty fascinating is at the beginning of the week, write out, like literally go through your calendar and everything you have to do and write out every single thing you have to do that week. Like list it all. It's probably pretty overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Then go, all right, imagine a scenario where you just found out that some, something happened in your family that you need. There's no choice. You need to go be with them for the remainder of the week. So you now have eight hours to get done everything that's essential this week. Now go back through that list and design your eight hours to get all that done. Mm. And notice what you pick and what you don't. Number one, it's going to create clarity for you around, well, what am I essential to? And what are the most high leverage things for me to do? It might also expose for you where uh, people are over-reliant on you. And maybe you need to learn as a leader, if you're a leader, how to share your thinking or help others equip them to do their jobs more fully without having to rely on you for as much. Once again, that creates more space. And odds are there's going to be a first tier and second tier of priority. So there will be that eight hours that you'll do all the urgent, like crucial stuff. Then there will be a second tier that's also probably still pretty important to your job. Those are also important to consider and to think through like, where do they fit and how do they fit? And do I need to do them? But the rest of it, you can probably let go of. They're all nice to haves. And when you're running from the beginning of the day till late at night, you cannot see the forest for the trees 
and differentiate what is crucial versus what is a nice to have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just taking the, the time to do that exercise and then look at well, what is most important and then designing your day and your week to prioritize those things. You get, this is the quality, you get so much higher quality out of your work and you get a lot more done from a productivity perspective. Mm-hmm. And now you freed up space. The challenge is, you know, this happened, I remember when mindfulness became such a big thing, mindfulness for stress relief in businesses, where people would take these mindfulness courses and they, they're like, this is amazing. I have created this, released all this stress. And then they would immediately add a whole bunch more to their plate and get back to their previous stress level. So it just became a mechanism for people to then just do more, but they, and they continue to be at the same stress level. That defeats the whole purpose. To me, the exercise is to then prioritize and let go of everything else. So you've created space and not just fill it up. Yeah. And that is, that's a human challenge because you have to resist your impulses, your fears, your, your ego, your desire to contribute and to feel like I'm doing so much and I'm contributing in all these wonderful ways. Well, especially because people are bound to have a reaction. And I think that's the thing people just kind of need to make peace with. Um, because people have gotten used to the way you've operated previously. If you're right. a yes person and you start being a no person, people are going to react to you suddenly saying no, and there'll be a transition period. But I love that because, um, there's, it's like, we just fill whatever space we have. So it's kind of like you live in a small apartment and then you move to a bigger apartment. And then when you move out of that bigger apartment, you're like, how the hell did I get all this stuff? And it's because <laughs> you just naturally fill up the space and we do the same thing with our time. So you need to shrink the container that you're willing to fill, but yeah, it takes discipline. Well, the other interesting thing, you know, we teach this uh, five yeses or something it's called, but the reality is if you're busy, if you're already full, every yes, you say is a false promise. You don't actually have the capacity to fully follow through or fully commit to that. Yes. So you're damaging your credibility every right. time. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, you can, yes, I know that there is that challenge in saying no, but reframing it in terms of what you're saying yes to as a result of that. I think number one, it's easier to do, especially if you're a yes person. And number two, it helps others better understand what you're prioritizing and why. If you're a leader, that's a great role modeling opportunity. And it begins to teach the organization, people around you, like how we're prioritizing and why we're prioritizing those things. Um, And then we all start to make smarter, better decisions together. Yeah, I think making making the reasoning visible is helpful. So Emma Rose, like you were saying, you, you don't have a child's dance recital to go to, but you do have you have your your mental health to take care of, and you have our um, you know the things that we as a company have said are important to us. And I, I think about that for myself too. Around like we've you know we've set certain priorities and we've set certain goals, and we can um, that keeping our focus on that can help us sort out what to what to say yes or no to instead. That's a great point, Katie. You know, purpose, let purpose drive the decisions. You know, right. Which, no purpose for serving. That actually reminds me, um, you know, there's been so many seasons of, you know, going through a breakdown, being so overwhelmed that you think this is it. This is the end for me. I think so, this one. <laughs> This one, this time is going to knock me off my feet. Um, But I had one of those moments towards the end of last year. And um, Mickey, who's not on this episode, but is normally, um, he said that when that happens to him, which he says it happens to him about twice a year. So (laughs) every year he goes through this exercise and he's done it with other people. So he did it with me of having me write down the categories in my life of things that are really important and, and not just at work, but including all of life. So where are the places that I'm committed or I like, I need to be committed in order to have the life that I really want. And so had me put down those categories and he said, you can't have more than 10 because that's just not possible. So you can't have more than 10. So 10 categories. And that included things like my physical health, 
my, you know, social life. Um, um, my, my dog was on there somewhere, somewhere on my, one of my personal life things, you know, making sure that I'm taking care of him and that he's getting training and company and not being abandoned. Um, along with then all the different pieces of my role in my job that feel really important. And like that I have, um, some responsibility for and, and testing those against, you know, the larger strategy that we've all committed to and different purposes in the company, what is the most important. And then he had me go into each of those and list out more details of what that looks like. What are the things, what are the events, the time, the time bound things I need to keep in mind for the year, the, um, practical day-to-day kind of things, all the different commitments in each category. And then he had me go through and pick like which ones were the most important. And I had to narrow that list down too. And it helped me at least get my head wrapped around. Okay. If I have said these things are important to me, what are the commitments that I have to maintain in order for that to be possible? And can I recognize that there is a cost if I don't, if I don't keep those commitments sacred? And one of the ways that I don't keep those upholding those commitments is by spreading myself too thin across a bunch of other things. And so it was like this good essential visioning exercise to help me then. He said that then the test on what you say yes or no to is those things. Like if you've you've said this list of four to eight things is the most important to you. Now you have to evaluate every decision over the next year based on those things. Like, does that help this or not? Um, so that's actually a practical thing that helped me. It's not exactly a step-by-step that's super detailed, but it did help me a lot. That's a, yeah, it's a really good one. I like the idea that it evolves too, that you keep using it until it's not useful. And then you, you let it be updated or you at least take another look at it. Right. Right. Well, and I do think, you know, I know the work-life balance term has been used a little too much at this point. It's like what, what you called over like in the last episode we did together, Katie, the grammatization or. Oh yeah. Grammaticalization. Yeah. It's like lost its meaning at this point. Um, but I do think there's something about looking at your life holistically, if you're trying to evaluate where the space needs to be and what your priorities are, because we aren't just at work. You and especially now and more and more, we've filled some of our personal time with the work stuff because we expanded into that space that we got during the pandemic. So now, I mean, more than ever, we have to look at it as you have these many, this many hours in a day. How do you use those hours? Whether that's for work or personal life or whatever. What I love about this, you know, this is these examples. Um, and this has come up so much for me in the past few months is I think we all need to reckon with the fact that we can't do it all. We want to, and we are exposed to so many podcasts and YouTube videos and shows on like seven streaming platforms now or whatever the heck it is, you know, social media plus work plus we have access to so much and we're interested in so many and we want it all. And so, you know, here all the life hacking stuff, which is about like how to fill up every spare moment with, you know, 10 minutes of an audiobook at each time you're standing in line or reading a book so that you cut, you read 50 books in a year instead of 30 books in a year. But I, but I think that's the wrong direction. I think we need to go the other direction. Once again, the quality and depth versus quantity. Because at the end of the day, can you actually remember details from the six podcasts you listened to over the past week? Probably not. When you add on all the YouTube videos you've watched and all the other things you've read and listened to and been part of. Um, and I, and I, so I think getting clear and clear about what is really most important to me. When you look at, you know, it's pretty well known, the research, when you, they interview people on their deathbed, none of them say, I wish I'd worked more. You know, that's sort of cliche at this point. But what's more interesting is what do they say was most important? And it's always the relationships, the family, the connections, the time away, the space, the play, you know, and the quality work. But I think if each of us zooms ahead and then turns around and looks back and considers, huh, 
for me, and I think MRO is what you just described was an example of a way to do that. What is what is most valuable? At the end of my life, what will I be a, what will I have been proud of that I accomplished that I put my time and energy into? And am I currently on track to be proud of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, and then even narrowing that down, it could be at the end of my life, or you could say this time next year. Right. You know, yeah. Where do I want to commit to myself that I've invested my time and energy? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Kel, you saying that has me wonder about, you know, if, if by trying to have or do everything, we're actually discounting, discounting our different experiences. So I'm thinking about, you know, many conversations you and I have had where I, I keep going back to my notebook because you've given me like three or four new books that I would love to read. <laughs> and I wonder if, you know, instead of going, okay, I've just got to put that on my to-do list, I'll get there. If I just said, what's, you know, what's something that you took away or what changed about the way that you experienced that book and, and use that as a point of connection instead of something I have to now go do and have that same sort of FOMO insecurity about, uh, you know, doing myself too. Mm-hmm. No, it's so true. I mean, it's funny you bring that up because for the listeners, Katie and I have had these conversations for years. We get excited about all the different things we're listening to and reading. And this is big for me. It's part of why I'm sharing it because it's something I'm currently wrestling with in my own life. But I've developed this new way of approaching it where instead of having this new thing I'm interested in and then going researching it, I've reversed the process. I first start with, I refuse to read anything about it. I'll take time to just journal and write and reflect. What is every single thing I know about this that I believe that I think that I've experienced? What are the stories I have to tell about it? And you know, because a lot of it relates to our work, I'll also often incorporate a, if I were to design a a program or something to work with a client about this, how would I design that? And then when I've exhausted myself, then the next thing I do, Katie, is I do exactly that. I go try to find people who I can ask, well, what's your experience? What's your opinion? What have you learned? Mm-hmm. And I'm finding the vast majority of books I have on my bookshelf and on my Kindle that I have like on my list that I've always wanted to read. When I do this, I actually already know it all. Like I'm not a know-it-all, but I'm, I'm already know the primary things they're going to teach. I might learn a few little things here and there. It's not really worth the effort to maybe spend the next three weeks, two or three weeks reading that book mm-hmm. because I already have a good grasp. And usually I have my own unique spin to it, which is even cooler. And then I've learned and connected with other people in the process. And then what I've, I've been learning out of that is, number one, I don't need to spend as much time on these things that I historically like people recommend all over the place and I just immediately want to read it. Instead, I seek and I'm looking for the things that are totally changed my way of thinking, that are so foreign, the experiences, the perspectives that I don't have any um, any, any experience or ground to even like consider that without this additional perspective, this book, this podcast. And so I've been focusing my time on finding those and using my time for that. And that's the way I've been, uh, reconciling this challenge around, I can't do it all. So how do I choose what to focus my time and energy on? Mm-hmm. Right. In, in conversant lingo, we might say that's separating the the sincere, I would love to do this, the nice to haves from the, what actually does go back to my purpose and my priorities right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, another thing we always say is do everything it takes and nothing more and then do less. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which, um, I don't know that we reliably do all the time, but we are living with that challenge. But I actually love that you bring up the book example because, um, we've had this conversation across the community so many times, I feel like over the last few years, but about reading specifically, like when eventually it starts feeling like another chore or burden or something, or like, I think, especially for those of us that are, um, natural learners and we want to gain that information, you know, you see a pretty cover and an interesting title and you go, I want to know everything that's in that book. I want my brain to get that much bigger. (laughs) Um, and So I'll buy the books and especially nonfiction over the years, I used to only let myself read nonfiction because that was what I I wanted to like grow my knowledge all the time. But then I would get kind of like, frankly, a little bit bored or it's like 
heady. So it's not something to read before you're falling asleep because it's just too hard to process. You're rereading the pages over and over again. And I kind of fell off of reading. And then um, just within the last year, I would say I started reading fiction again. And now this year I have a, a goal to read 60 books. I read with friends. I'm in a book club. We mostly read fiction books. I still read nonfiction here and there, but I'm not pressuring myself to use my time that way. I actually am using it for like that joy or, or like escapism or fantasy or creativity or something is also a value of my time that I can prioritize. I don't have to make it productive. Um, and our friend, um, Michelle Wansley, she was saying she, she's had a similar thing and that she has all these nonfiction books on her shelf and she's given herself the right to just have a reference library. Like (laughs) now it's on my shelf. I know I have it. If I ever want to look something up, I can look it up, but I don't have to pressure myself to read every word on every page of all of those books and then feel bad about it later. We just give ourselves way too much. Well, in so many of those nonfiction books, the people, the authors, that's the culmination of 10 or 20 years of their experience and life into a book. And it's totally irrational to think that you can absorb all the lessons in one reading. You know, it just makes absolutely no sense. You know, which brings me to one other point is that space. Like, it's not just about freeing up the time to focus on the things that matter. It's also taking the space to let the things you're engaging in or learning about enjoy it. You know, watch, watch a little baby play. They don't wake up in the morning and say, I need to walk across the room six times today to build my my capacity to balance. (laughs) They don't have a productive productivity mindset yet humans grow the fastest and best when they're babies, right? They just follow their curiosity and then they'll sit and focus on one thing for a while because they're just so fat and they'll do the same thing over and over and over again. Like one thing I I think walking is one of the most powerful practices but often people go for a walk and listen to a podcast or whatever. If you just let your mind go and walk, I call it naked walking, like you wear clothes, but with no music or input, <laughs> no, and you just do. walk. It's unbelievable what your mind will do. Yeah. And it requires you no longer putting input into it for it to actually work that way to make connections to to go deeper to have new insights it's the reason why like one of the few places for most of us that's left in life that we don't have input is the shower and that's where people say they get all their aha moments because they actually gave them their mind and their their system space their nervous system space to just do its thing but we're crowding out that creative parts of part of ourselves yeah yeah well, or, or even like creating the space in your relationships, like so much of our time now is structured and scheduled for a purpose, you know, like Kel, you and I have a weekly call on our calendars. That's just Emeril's and Kel talk about everything. <laughs> and we don't like, occasionally it's like, okay, we need to make sure we talk about something that's work related when we meet on Friday, but we create that space. And then so many of our own insights about our work and, you know, our personal lives, all this different creativity have come, has come out of those conversations. But if we didn't create the space for that, then we wouldn't, you know, if it was just like, we can only talk about this one thing and we have 30 minutes and then I have to go to the next thing. I wouldn't have ever gotten all those insights. Me either. Yeah. I think there, yeah, there is this, this great idea to, to proactively looking for joy at work too. So I've, I've recently been, working with a client who uses the working genius assessment and something that I learned from this is they talk about burnout, not coming from the places that you are, the tasks that you're most frustrated by, because you instinctively find shortcuts and ways to, to make that work easier, but it actually comes from the tasks that you have competency in, but that don't bring you joy, that aren't exciting to you, that aren't challenging. And so it's when you do those repetitive things that people go to you and are you're reliable for, but have no no enjoyment in, that's when you actually find more exhaustion in work. So to, to balance out those kinds of tasks, I think is really important as you're looking at your day, your week, any of that. That reminds me um, that if you haven't heard it, you should go listen to the flow episode that we did last <laughs> yeah. year. Yes. I think that's also very related. Like where 
are you conscious of where the right edges are for you to be operating at? Like, where's your developmental edge that you have, you care about it. You are competent enough that it's, it's just a challenge enough that it keeps you super engaged, but it's not so overwhelming either from like a, I can't do this standpoint, like to your point earlier, Kel, that I can't, um, but it's also not so boring that you're like, well, I can't even believe I'm spending my time on this. Uh, um, of course those, those ones are sometimes when you can listen to a podcast, but maybe you shouldn't, I don't know what our best practice would be about that, but yeah, listen to the flow one. Cause I think that's true. And like, just even being conscious of, I was telling a client, a coaching client, we just did her 360 review. Um, you know, and one of the principles I laid out at the beginning of her report was don't skip over your strengths because it's so easy to go directly to the places that everybody says we need to improve or that we're deficient, but you know, spend some time really with the strengths and realize that's where you're naturally really great. You naturally engage. And that's your foundation to lean on for growing in all of the other areas. That's not the places that you require a lot of energy to grow. So you need to make sure you're conscious of that's your place to play. And that's your foundation for everything else. So it's really important to follow the joy, follow the places you naturally have energy and all of that rather than always focusing so much on the places we need to improve or grow. So that does come back to where we started this in that we have expected a lot of ourselves in the last two years and we have learned quite a bit and grown quite a bit in, in what we're able to accomplish. So it could be a time to take a breath and take stock of that and see what's, what's still serving us and what isn't. Right. And yeah, well, take a breath, but also take an out breath. Kel, right. to your point. <laughs> Exhale. Um, which this has been a great reminder for me too, because as Katie alluded to, we are in a very busy time in our company right now. So it was good to take the space to have this conversation with you. Um, do you, we usually finish these with what we learned. Of course, I mean, we might have to have a part two about this as we continue to experiment for ourselves and keep having these conversations internally. Oh, and the only other thing I was going to say before we do that is um, if you're struggling with this in your own organization, I think the first encouragement is go expand the conversation, like talk to other people. I bet you, you are not the only person on your team or in your company that feels the exact same way. And if you start talking about it and sharing your experiences, that's you know, acknowledgement of it. And then you can start deciding what you could experiment on together to improve the space in your day. So, um, but yeah, any, what did you guys learn or what are you, what insight are you leaving with? Well, Emma Rose, I think for me, there's so much in this one that I want to go, this right here is an exercise and what am I going to take away not everything that we've talked about, but one or two things. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm really curious about that prioritization exercise about just listing out the things in my life that I do want to spend my time and my energy on. And how does that make space for the rest or give me an indication of where to go with the rest? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah. For me, I'm, I really... Similarly, I, I, I love this. I mean, like I said, this is one of my <laughs> places of fascination in work and life is how to find this balance. And, um, and I love, Emma Rose, what you were just sharing about connecting with our competency and where we're strong and using that as the place to stand. You know, we often rely on willpower, which is very, very limited. And that's often about what I'm against but to instead shift and focus on well, what am I for and what are, what are the skills I have to offer that I can step into and use? That's energizing. That feel, it gives you autonomy and a sense of control and a sense of purpose and a sense of direction. That's step number one in even beginning to tackle any of this. Just the assumption that I do have the skills and capacity to do something about this. I don't know maybe what that is, but I have it. Um, and then... I'd also like to just offer one more quote that I absolutely love by Anne Lamont. 
for those of you who know her. Everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes and plug it back in, including you. Too true. You might need more than a few minutes, but at least a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, I think um, just your reminder that we can talk about this on such a theoretical level. And I mean, we can complain and share all of our experiences for hours. Um, but how do we make it practical and adopt some sort of promise to ourselves, which is really a promise to others too. And I think that's the important part, Katie, to your thing about being selfish. It's it's not selfish. It's actually, I'm at my best and in best service to our purpose and to others when I'm taking care of my energy and my time and my focus. So um, just what kind of practices can I commit to in my own day-to-day? Like you're saying, Kel, it's not realistic to always take a week off a month, but how do I, uh, how do I stand my ground with some boundaries and role model that for others? Cause we are part of the paradigm shift or so we hope. <laughs> well, Just thank you so start much. With, start with one thing, you know, yes. it's not, don't try to do the whole thing at once. Start with one and build a little momentum. There you go. Well, let us know what your one thing is. Um, would love to hear if you've been experimenting this with this yourself. And we will talk to you again very soon. Thank you, Kel and Katie, for being here. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Guy Connolly. Original artwork is by Dana Buckingham and music is by a cast of characters. Special thanks to Conversance Extended Community who inspire the continued evolution of our work and stand with us in our commitment to change leadership, business, and the world through conversation. You can learn more about Conversant at www.conversant.com. On Connection is created and produced by the members of Conversant. Awakening the world to the power and joy of authentic human connection, we set a new standard for leadership that produces meaningful, enduring impact. Until next time.